0: Oh, good morning, and uh, welcome to Hope Community Church. I'm Pastor Trevor. I'm glad you could join us this morning, Uh, for those of you in person, those of you joining us online as well. And again, Children's Church is today, and it will be offered every week from here on out. Uh, Before we begin, I do want to talk about the Table Talk class that we're starting uh, next week. I have eight copies, uh, well, seven copies in the back, one up here, of Exploring Christian Theology, Volume 1, the book that we will be going through in that class. Uh, that will be offered on the Sundays when we don't have a lunch. So actually for this month, we actually only have uh, one time we'll meet, and that will be next Sunday the 16th, um, and we'll cover pages 9 through uh, 30. So if you haven't ordered a copy, you need the church to provide you a copy, we've got copies um, in the back. If they all disappear and you still need a copy, uh, let me know. So there will be seven up there and uh, one up here in the pulpit for you uh, to have. If you have questions on that... Uh, Please uh, let me know. And as you read, uh, make sure you highlight, you mark things that you want to ask questions on or share uh, thoughts on. Um, That way you can reference it come that Sunday and you don't have to remember uh, what you had a a question on. So at this time, let's go to our Father in Heaven in prayer. Father, thank you for your mercy and grace. Uh, And as we come before you this morning, we ask that you would uh, forgive us our sins. Um, And we ask this, Father, on the basis of your Son, uh, the work that he has accomplished on the cross, and um, in light of that, Father, we ask that you would bless us this morning with your word, that you would help us to hear your voice, uh, that we would uh, not be distracted, that we would not be um, overburdened by the worries and anxieties of this world, uh, and not be distracted by the delights and the pleasures as well, Father, but that we would uh, be solely focused on what you have to say this morning, Um, and that we would be encouraged, um, refreshed this morning, by your word, by your truth, by your spirit, and that we'd be edified, equipped, and sanctified so that we can glorify you in all that we do. Father, we ask this by the power of the Spirit that dwells within us in the name and in the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So last week, we spoke about uh, the where and how to find the true word of God. Uh, This week, we now consider one of the reasons, if not the main reason, people don't seek the word of God and that is idolatry. We have King Ahab who died last, well he didn't die last week, but in our chapter that we talked about last week we read about him uh, dying by a random arrow in battle. His son Ahaziah um, has risen to the throne in his place. So our text this morning uh, is verse 51 of the last chapter of 1st Kings, which is 1st Kings 22, and we go through the first chapter of 2nd Kings. I've taken this text and broken it into four parts. The first part, verses 51 through 2, set up the situation that compels Ahaziah to engage in open idolatry. The second part, verses 3 through 6, show us how God responds to our desire to look elsewhere. The third part, verses 7 through 14, reveal to us how God views and treats those who disrespect his word. And the final portion, verses 15 through 18 of 2 Kings 1, show how we, the church, ought to act when face-to-face with those who are doomed to hell and those whom have power who can threaten us with our lives. So let's begin by reading uh, verse 51 of the last chapter of 1 Kings and reading through verse 2 of the first chapter of 2 Kings. And if you need a Bible, uh, they're underneath the seats around you. Ahaziah, the, king of, excuse me, the son of Ahab, began to reign over Israel in Samaria in the seventeenth year of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, and he reigned two years over Israel. He did what was evil in the sight of Yahweh and walked in the way of his father and in the way of his mother and in the way of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin. He served Baal and worshipped him and provoked Yahweh, the God of Israel, to anger in every way that his father had done. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go, inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So first we have the introduction of Ahaziah. He is the son of Ahab and he walked in all the evil ways of his father. He began his reign in the 17th year of Jehoshaphat's reign of Judah. Jehoshaphat, as you may recall, is the good, righteous king of Judah. Ahaziah, of course, is not righteous. He is evil. In fact, he's compared with three other evil rulers. His father, Ahab, his mother, evil queen Jezebel, and then the evil king that started it all, Jeroboam of Nabat. And because of this evil, he provokes Yahweh to anger. And when Ahab died... Moab rebels, so at the moment of Ahab's death, Moab rebels, and Ahaziah for two years, instead of dealing with Moab on the battlefield like he should as a good king, he's hiding away in his palace, and one of the times he's in his palace in Samaria, he falls through the lattice, which is meant to keep him from falling uh, from the upper room, but he falls through it. We're not told how. But he does. He tries to, though he tries to hide from the random arrow on the battlefield that struck his dad down. He's unable to hide from the judgment of God, and so by this falling, he suffers a horrible injury beyond the fall. Perhaps some eternal bleeding. Perhaps he has picked up an infection from the wounds of the fall. But he is on his deathbed, and he seeks um, consolation uh, from an idol, specifically. Uh, Baal is above from Ekron, the Philistine uh, city, one of the five major cities of Philistia. So the apple, having not fallen too far from the tree, moves God to intervene in this moment. Though Yahweh is not the one sought, Yahweh, in his grace and mercy towards his people Israel, moves to act. And he also moves to act for those of us today looking back on this event that we can learn from it as well. So let us read in verses three through six and see how Yahweh intervenes. But the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there's no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal as above, the God of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says Yahweh, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us, and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you. And say to him, Thus says Yahweh, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal, Zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now, before we really dive in this text, let me talk about the angel of Yahweh or the angel of, of the Lord. I've spoken about this before, uh, but when we see this, sometimes this is what we call a Christophany. That is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, the uh, Son of God in some form prior to the incarnation in the Old Testament. Uh, and, but not every time we see angel of the Lord, angel of Yahweh, is it actually Christ. The context will often help us understand. Um, will inform us of this, if this is God or not. Um, And in this case, the the context doesn't tell us that this is God, there's not enough here to think that it is a Christophany. The common belief, and what I I believe is, this is just an angel, a a messenger of of Yahweh, a messenger of God, and this messenger of God is contrasting the messengers of Ahaziah. Ahaziah has sent his messengers to a false god, and God himself has sent his messenger to Elijah to deliver his word to Ahaziah. So here, we see God responding to Ahaziah's desire to inquire of another god, to seek wisdom from another thing. As if Yahweh does not exist, as if the God of Israel isn't there for Ahaziah to seek advice from, to seek guidance from. So for this action, for this desire, this open idolatry that Ahaziah is engaging in, he will not get up from the bed in which he now lays. So this morning, I want you to consider to whom do you turn in your time of need, in your time of confusion, in your time of uncertainty, and the time of your pain and suffering, to whom do you go? To where do you go? Who do you go for your deliverance, for your escape? Where do you look for joy, for satisfaction, for pleasure? And if it's not ultimately God or something that points you to God, it's an idol or it's a tool of an idol in your life and you must do away with it. You must have nothing to do with it. You must flee from it. Paul in 1 Corinthians 10.14 says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Right? Don't tolerate it. Don't, don't just put up with it, but flee from idolatry. John in 1 John 5.21 writes, Little children, keep yourselves from idols. There's no place in the believer's life for an idol. None. Not even on the bookshelf. But maybe you're thinking, well, I don't go to temples of foreign gods. I don't worship pagan holidays, but again, idols are not always found in temples. Consider how you or others seek wisdom, how you seek truth, how you seek comfort in regards to how you ought to live, how you ought to worship, how you ought to serve the church, what you ought to do, what the new year might bring. One popular source of idol and demonic wisdom nowadays are horoscopes and, or mediums or tarot cards, along with other various forms of astrology and um, divination. In Isaiah 47, verses 12 to 15, God says, speaking through his prophet, stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed. Perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied. With your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars throughout the new moons, make known what shall come upon you. He is saying, You have wearied yourself. You are so concerned about what life is going to bring you, what the future holds, or or who you are. You're so busy looking inside yourself, you're wearing yourself out. You're looking to the stars to try to figure this life out. You have exhausted. Therefore, let them deliver you. You put so much trust in them. Well, let them deliver you. And then he goes on to talk about the judgment they will bring. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves in the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before. In other words, they are utterly useless. You can't warm yourself with them. Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. And perhaps you think, well, I don't do horoscopes. I don't read that, that's babble. Well, what about enneagrams? Right? Enneagrams are incredibly popular in the church nowadays. You go to Barnes & Noble, and you will find book after book after book about enneagrams and how you can be a better Christian based off of your enneagram number. See, the desire to look inward rather than upward, that is an act of idolatry. To be like, well, I wonder who I am. I need to know who I am in order to do whatever in life. When you need to be looking upward. And when we talk about upward, we're not talking about like literally like looking upward, like the, the disciples in Acts 1, as Jesus ascended, they kept looking, and the angel's like, why are you still looking up there? Get to work. When we talk about looking upward, we're talking about orienting our lives, having a compass that is eternal, that focuses on the unseen, not the seen, not on earthly matters. And when we talk about the Enneagram, I mean, the source of the Enneagram is highly suspect, right? The guy who, who came up with it admits he just kind of made it up and he, what he calls automatic writing. He just started writing and he automatically had words come to him and he was able to come up with all the descriptions for all these numbers and, and so forth. So that should have you wonder, well, what was the source, right? But the, regardless of the source, any tool, any device, any method, right? not even just the Enneagram, but any tool, any device that causes you to look more inward, more to yourself rather than to upward to God, Forsake it. You don't need to be looking inward. You need to be looking upward at God. You want to know more about yourself? You want to know why you are the way you are? Look to God. Let God tell you through his revealed word. Right? We talked about this last week. The truth that we need is the word of God. His word will tell you. It doesn't matter how messed up you are, how complicated you think you are, how dysfunctional you are, how traumatized your past is, how broken you may be. You're not that special. You're not a mystery. You're a sinner, like me and like everyone else here. And God's word is is plain on that. The reason you are messed up is because you are depraved, because you are fallen. You are in need of a redeemer. And if you want to know what's in store for you, what, what this year might have for you, again, let God tell you. Don't go elsewhere. God tells you in his word what this year has for you. It's either damnation or be transformed into the image of Christ so that you may enter into his kingdom for all eternity. And understand, all of us, everyone here, we're all works in progress, right? So whoever you are right now, it's not who you will be, right? No one no one here, we're constantly being sanctified. Do not think once as a believer, well, this is how I am. This is how I was made. Outside of your physical characteristics, right, like you if you're, fully, if you're a fully grown man or woman, you're not going to change your height by, by much, right? So you're going to stay the same. You can't change that. I mean, it's going to change, but not for the good. It's going to change worse as you get older and things happen, right? That will come in glory. But your temperament, your personality, your righteousness, that gets changed as you continue to be transformed into the image of Christ. You can't just sit there and be like, well, I'm a four with the Enneagram. And then therefore, I do these things. Or it's okay for me to be melancholy. Because it's, that's who I am. No, it's not. You are in Christ. You are in Christ now. You no longer live. It's Christ who lives in you. Christians, believers, disciples of Christ should not be confused as to who they are or how they are to act. Right? We shouldn't be wondering, well, I wonder why I'm this way. Well, you're a sinner. Well, how should I act? Act like Christ. You should be like Christ. We should strive ahead to be like him. We should be like what Paul says in Philippians, right? Forgetting what's behind and straining ahead for what's ahead straining for that grasping for it yearning for it so we are to live love as he did selflessly sacrificially and all things for the glory of god but beyond seeking guidance beyond seeking insight wisdom we must also not turn to other ways or other things to seek power for this life consider uh, the practice of grave soaking by Bethel Church. Now, Bethel Church doesn't like the term grave-soaking. Rather, they see it as an attempt to receive a special anointing from believers who have died, right? So Spurgeon, being a great preacher, in order to receive his anointing of preaching, you can go to his grave and, and lay on it or do something where you can grab his mantle or kind of like an Elijah moment, Right? where you can receive the special gift of preaching that Spurgeon had and you can have it in your life. Or you go to C.S. Lewis's grave to get his anointing on writing and thinking and so forth. You don't need to do that. Like That's an act of idolatry. You have all the power as a believer that you need dwelling within you. See, we get power to live in this life by the Spirit. Paul, Ephesians 3.16, According to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with what? Power through what? His Spirit in your inner being. The same Spirit that indwelt Spurgeon indwells you. The same Spirit that indwells the Apostle Paul indwells you. The same Spirit that created all things by the word of Christ is in you. Like You don't need anything else. You don't need any more power, any more anointing. That spirit is in you already. You don't need to circle anything to try to engage or try to manipulate God to your will. You have his spirits in you. We can even throw in the Roman Catholic practice of praying to saints or the prayer to Mary that's called the uh, Memorare. right? We don't need to say those things. They're dead, right? We don't get special anointings by praying to them. We have one mediator to act on our behalf, First Timothy 2.5. Paul says there is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And then consider Romans 8. When we pray, who intercedes for us? Right? Paul, Romans 8.26 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And then eight verses later, in Romans 8.34, Paul says, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Where are the saints, Paul? Where is Mother Mary? Why, why, why are they not included? Don't we need to? No, you don't. Why? Because you have the Spirit in you, who is interceding for you. God himself. No man, no woman. The only man who is interceding for you is Jesus, who is God, right? He's the only man you pray to. He's the only mediator. He's interceding because the Spirit that he has sent on his behalf from the Father is indwelling you. He is the power that you need for this life. You need no other power, and you do not need to engage in any paganistic practice to mobilize or to engage that power. So consider anything that may cause you to gaze at your navel rather than Christ. And do away with it. Anything that causes you to look at yourself more than Christ, flee it. In Philippians 3.19, Paul talking about enemies of the cross of Christ. Right. This is how the enemies of the cross of Christ act. He says, their end is destruction. Their God, that is their appetite, is is their belly, which is their appetite, their lust, their desires. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Colossians 3.5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And what is earthly? He tells us sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. What are you seeking in your life that you know you should not be seeking? What are you desiring that you know you should not be desiring? That is an idol. And oftentimes, people who want to add to scripture or mitigate scripture or get scripture out of the picture and say, well, I know what God wants from me. They'll come up with these idols in their lives. They'll come up with these methods and then they justify their behavior with sexual immorality, impurity, passion and so forth because that's what they desire because their God is not Christ. Their God is their belly, their fleshly fleshly appetites. So ask yourself this, can these things, can they save you? Can these idols in your lives save you? And if they can't, and of course they can't, why go to them? Consider who and what they lead you from. They lead you from God, and they keep you from your salvation. Hear the words of God in Judges 10, 13, 14. He's just told his people, Israel, I have delivered you from your enemies. And he goes on at 13, yet you have forsaken me. Right? I have delivered you, yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Let the Enneagram save you. Go ahead and say, well, I'm this number. This is just how I am, God. Okay, well, is there salvation in that? No, because it's not Christ. You need to be found in Christ to be saved by Christ. And yet, this is the very thing that Ahaziah, he is seeking for with this false god, right? Getting back to our text, he's seeking for some form of deliverance, some form of comfort from this false god and Ekron. Well, let's read on and see how Ahaziah responds to God's rebuke in verses 7 through 14. He said to them, what kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, he wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And Ahaziah said, it is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of 50 men with his 50 he went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of the hill, and said to him, "'O man of God, the king says, come down.' But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, "'If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty. And he answered and said to him, "'O man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly.' But Elijah answered them, "'If I am a man of God,' Let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again, the king sent the captain of the third fifty with his fifty, and the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, please let my life and the life of these fifty servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties, but now let my life be precious." in your sights. So Ahaziah, he hears that this man is uh, Elijah. He knows it's Elijah because he grew up in his father's courts. Clearly, he might have even been on Mount Carmel uh, when Elijah called fire down from heaven to consume the offering. So he knows what Elijah looks like. And so he knows this is Elijah, and he sends men after Elijah. Uh, And we don't know exactly what he's hoping to do by getting Elijah to come to him. Maybe he's hoping Elijah will change the message as if he has authority to do so, or maybe relent on it, or maybe just simply to punish him. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us. But he sends three companies of 50 plus a captain. The first two companies, um, they get consumed by fire. So 102 men, right? The captain plus the 50, 51, two companies, they all get consumed by fire. It's either literal fire or it's like lightning from uh, the skies. But note how these two captains, the first two captains, come to Elijah. right? The first one says, the king says, come down. The second one says, the king's order is this, come down quickly. Both of these first two captains emphasize the king's authority, so subjecting the man of God under that authority. And so Elijah's like, insolent fools, how could you do this? And so fire comes down. They treat Elijah as one who ought to obey the king, more than Yahweh. However, the third captain, when he comes, notice the actions there in verse 13. He falls down in humility before Elijah, and notice the word there, he entreats him, right? He's, he compassionately, he, he pleads with him, he kindly requests his favor, he implores him for favor, for gentleness, and he, he recognizes, hey, we are servants of you. Like, we serve God first before the king, so So be kind to us, spare us. And as we're going to read, the angel of Yahweh tells him, yes, go with him, do not fear. The fire from above wasn't simply for Elijah's sake. It wasn't just simply to protect Elijah. Elijah could be protected in other ways without having to kill 102 men, without that kind of a show. But the fire in these events, they happen to show and to reveal the wrath of God to those who are insolent toward his word, those who disrespect his holiness, his authority. Now, of course, today, we are not to seek fire from heaven to consume our enemies, right? Luke 9, right? The sons of thunder, James and John says, Jesus, the Samaritan village, they don't like you. Can we call fire down from heaven? What does Jesus do? He rebukes them. See, we need to remember that our text and all the Old Testament occurred during the days that existed for our instruction that is the unfolding of, of revelation. But now, today, all that needs to be revealed has been revealed for us. Thus, now we are able and expected to live to a higher standard than what they were back then. Hear the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, 12. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. Then hear the words of Jesus about this higher standard. Matthew 5, 43, 44, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Luke six twenty seven twenty nine 29, I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic. In fact, Paul tells us in Romans 12 to use kindness against our enemies. Verses 19 through 21. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. In other words, what Paul is saying here, like if you really want to get back at the evil people, be nice to them. Because by you being nice to them, by blessing them with the same grace that God has given you, you're actually going to heap burning coals on their head. You're going to make the judgment at the end of days worse because of how you have been blessing them, if they do not respond to God's grace by your grace and turn and repent of their sins, when the day of judgment comes, God will say, well, Johnny was nice to you. Johnny did all this and you persecuted, you abused him, you scorned him, and yet he continued to love him. And because of that, they will experience a harsher judgment. But if God's glory, if they do repent to God, will praise God that you save, save a soul with it. So we're called to live to a higher standard, we who are in the kingdom, we who have the Holy Spirit within us. When you read this text and you read of God consuming those who are ignorant, those who are insolent toward his word, just don't brush it off, right? Be warned, like what Paul said, right? Take heed if you think you stand lest you fall. Consider how you respond. Consider how God has given you what you need. We have the full revelation, all the revelation that we need on this side of eternity. And consider how God treats those who disrespect his gift of grace. In Jeremiah 44, verses four through six, and and call to mind, this is written during the exile. This is after 586 BC when the temple has been destroyed, Jerusalem has been sacked by Babylon, and Judah and Israel are both in exile. He writes, yep, this is God speaking through Jeremiah, yet I persistently sent to you all my servants, the prophets, saying, oh, do not do this abomination that I hate. But they did not listen or incline their ear to turn from the evil and make no offerings to other gods. Therefore my wrath and my anger were poured out and kindled in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem, and they became a waste and a desolation as at this day. Right? He kept sending his prophets. We have his word. You keep hearing his word. Society keeps hearing his word. The church keeps hearing his word. And yet, many continue to do the abominations that his word tells us not to engage in. God here, in Jeremiah, he poured out his wrath on who? Was it the Babylonian Empire in this instance? No, I mean, they get God's wrath later. But here, who does he pour it out on? His own people the covenant people of Israel. Do not presume that you, because you warm a seat here at Hope Community Church, that you will be spared his wrath. You must flee from the false idols in your life. In 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 8-9, through 9, uh, Paul, writing about the day of which Jesus is revealed at the, end of day, uh, at the end of times and his judgment on the wicked, says this, and flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God, and... On those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So they might know God, but they don't obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. So fire will consume those who are unwilling to submit to God's holy word. The only thing that awaits them is eternal, that is, everlasting, unending destruction. So this event with the soldiers and Elijah, it serves as a warning. But as much of it as it being a warning, it is also a comfort. It is an encouragement that God is faithful to act on, not only on his behalf and his glory, but on the behalf of those who believe in him, those who are faithful to him on behalf of his saints. So let's read the final portion. Let's see how Elisha acts when he is face to face with the doomed king. Verses 15 through 18. Then the angel of Yahweh said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king, and said to him, Thus says Yahweh, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baal's above the god of Ekron, is it because there is no god in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died, according to the word of Yahweh that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now, the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Let me explain the two Jehoroms here. So we have Jehorom, the son of Jehoshaphat, who is king of Judah. Then we have this other Jehorom, uh, and can also he's also known by Jerome. And many translations just go with Jerome to keep it from being confusing. Jehorom, or Jerome, is the brother of Ahaziah because he didn't have a son but you also have King Jehoram of, of Judah. So just try to keep those two uh, uh, separate as much as you are able. So Elijah here, he is told by God through his angel, go to the king and do not fear before you go before him. And remember, this is Ahaziah, who walked in every evil way that King Ahab had walked. Right? And King Ahab, uh, along with his queen Jezebel, were sometimes hostile to the prophets of Yahweh. And Elijah knows this, but he goes before him. And when he goes before the king, how does he act? Does he change his message at all? Does he soften his tone? I mean, as a herald of God, he has no place to do that. He has to deliver the message. But he also doesn't put like a thousand qualifications before the message either. He doesn't come before the king and say, Oh, king, I really appreciate you. I really adore you. I really like what you've done with the economy. I really think you are a swell guy. And I really don't want to give you this message but but I have to. I hope you understand. This is just God's word. So please, you know, receive the message and don't like, not like me because of it. I just want to tell you what God said. He doesn't do that, does he? Right? And unfortunately, many pastors, when they come up to preach God's word, they'll do that, right? Like, well, we're going to talk about homosexuality. I just want you to know, I like gays. I love gays. You know, this is just God's word. And they put one qualification in front of the other before they actually get to God's word. See, Elijah, no, he goes before the king. He tells him the very same thing that the king already knew. The message the king didn't want to hear, the king got. Because it's God's words, it's God's message. And because Elijah spoke plainly, bluntly, honestly, Elijah was gracious towards the king. He showed compassion towards the king because he wasn't a coward. Because he loved the king enough to tell him exactly what he needed to hear. Because when God speaks, whatever he says says, whether you like it or not, whatever God says is exactly what you need to hear, no matter how much it stings, It's just like if you go to the hospital with a, a wound and it needs to be cleaned out. They're not going to ask you, well, we, we won't treat you if it's going to hurt you. No, they're going to hurt you if it makes you better, right? They're going to flush out that wound, as uncomfortable and as painful as it might be if it saves your life. They will do what is necessary. Likewise, when we deliver God's word to lost souls, to wounded souls... We must do the same. It is an act of compassion. Consider how Ahab responded in 1 Kings 21 when he received the word of God from Elijah. Remember that one moment when Ahab actually repented and he put on sackcloth and fasted? And God's like, Elijah, you see this? Ahab's repented, evil King Ahab. Because he's repented to the word that you gave to him honestly about the horrible judgment that's coming to him, I'm going to delay it. Unfortunately for Ahab, he didn't come to full repentance. And Ahaziah here, he could have done the same here. He had an opportunity. But we get no indication from the text that he does any type of repentance, any mourning at all. So he dies. You need to understand, though it is the easier thing to do, it is not a loving thing to fool a sinner into thinking that they are right with God when the fires of hell are awaiting them. It is a cold and cowardly act to preserve one's relationship with another person at the expense of the truth, especially saving truth. As the late Adrian Rogers was famously known uh, for saying, it is better to tell the truth that hurts and then heals rather than a lie that comforts and then kills. The church today, we have a duty to be faithful, to be bold, to be loving, when the world challenges the word of God, when the world threatens by its numbers, by its public opinions, by its false idols, that what God has said is wrong or or it's misunderstood or it just cannot be understood, the church has a responsibility to be the pillar and buttress of truth, as Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.15. And as that pillar, you are to say, thus says God, Thus says Yahweh, thus says Christ, thus says his word. So though the world may threaten to consume you with the fires of persecution, you must hold fast to the word of truth, knowing that the fires of this world that may come upon you for your faithfulness by not engaging in idolatry, they are temporary. But they who are lost, they who light the flame under your feet, those who continue in their sin, continue in their idolatry, the fire of God will consume them forever. It will not end. But we need to keep this in mind, that the very person, the very people who are lighting the fires under your feet, they are who you once were, hostile to God, enemies of God. You were they. And so we must keep that in mind. We need to remember that by God's grace, We are no longer that way. We are no longer the murderers, the idolaters, the adulterers that we once were. We have been washed by God's grace, by his word, by the blood of his son. Therefore, we love them and we endure with them patiently just as God endures with us. We don't presume on his kindness, right? God is kind to us in order that we may repent and we endure with them even if it means that you must suffer for them. As Peter writes in 1 Peter three seventeen eighteen, 18, he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. And it is an evil thing to keep God's truth from those who need to hear it. And that includes your brother and sister in Christ who is walking in sin, and they need to be rebuked, they need to be corrected, or they're engaging in idolatry. You need to point them to Christ. That is a good thing. And if you must suffer for it, so be it. For the glory of God, do it. It is better to do that. He goes on. For Christ also suffered once for sins. You want to know Christ more, engage, enter into the suffering that he entered into for our behalf. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit you cannot be faithful in this life if your life is full of idols. You cannot be faithful if you're constantly looking elsewhere for wisdom and for power to live this life. You cannot be faithful and you will not know Christ if if you're constantly turning to and depending on earthly things. And perhaps you're thinking, well, for all the sin that we must reject, All the idolatry, all the earthly things that we are told to say no to, that we must reject, what is left? What is there left for me to turn to? Christ. Christ is left, right? You have your whole life. You have your family relationships, your goals, your passions, your desires, and God's saying, put them to death. All of it. Must I? Yes. Why? Because Christ is over here. You hold on to anything here, you will lose all of it. You will lose both God and the things that you try to hold on to. But you give all this up for Christ, you have everything that you need. It's everlasting, never-ending. It's all that you need. It's more than what you need. This is garbage. This is glory. That's the choices that you have. Christ is more. He's abundantly more. So clean to him and no other. He is enough. And he has the answers. It can't be like, well, it can't be that simple, can it? Is Jesus really the answer? Like the Sunday school answer. The answer is always Jesus. Yes. It is that simple. Doesn't mean it's going to be easy, but the answer itself is that simple. Do not believe the lie of Satan, the lie of hell that says, well, it's Jesus plus this. Like Jesus is good. He helps you out, He gets you there. But well, now you need to confess to your priest. You need to do this. You need to do A, B, and C in order to get to Z, in order to be saved. No. Or to maintain your salvation, no. Or, yes, you have Christ, but in order to love your spouse right, you need to know the five love languages. Do away with the five love languages. It's manipulative. It's legalistic. Right? You want to know how to love and speak to your spouse? Grace. Read scripture. Practice grace towards one another. Practice dying to self, and you will love your spouse better as you're supposed to. Whether they love you according to your love language or not, imagine if God treated you that way. Love me according to my love language, and I'll love you back according to your love language. Like, no. Love sacrificially, selflessly. You want to be a better father? A better mother? Know Christ. Know how to raise children in the truth and the faith, graciously, compassionately. Even when you mess up, learn how to confess your sin. That's not something Christ does, but He shows us how we can do that. Go to Christ. He has the answers. You don't need an Enneagram to tell you how to serve the church. Right? These ridiculous devotions or reading Bible plans based off of your Enneagram. This is how you're going to grow in Christ based off of who you are. No, you're a sinner. Go to his word. Grow in his word. Submit yourself to his word. It's plain. Anyone who tries to tell you you need to add more or this is not enough, they're a liar. Right? They are doomed to hell. The minute you add anything to Christ, you lose Christ. He is the son of God. He is enough. To say that you that to add anything is to say, God, you're not enough. You're telling the creator who created all things, you're not enough. So I need this insight. I need this man-earthly wisdom to guide me in my life to be faithful to you. No, that's garbage. That comes from hell. It's gonna lead you astray. He is enough. And that's the beauty of it. Yes, it is that simple. Praise God. He's given us his word. I mean, like, yes. Like, I, if I can read, this is why we want to translate scripture to, God, to, to people who don't have his word and their languages. So they can hear God speak. This is why reading his word, it's not just a Bible plan of obedience. I'm just checking this off. No, it's God speaking the way of life. Not just like how to have a successful life and hold a job, but everlasting life that when this world perishes, you don't. Like Praise God that he is gracious towards us and has given us his word so we can understand it. And because of that, we do all things, all things unto him, everything, whether you eat or drink, you do so for his glory. That degree that you're getting, you do so for his glory. You're a father, you're a mother, For his glory. You're a child to his glory. Be a blessing to your parents for his glory. The job that you have is for his glory, for the kingdom, for the church. You serve the church not for your sake, but for his glory. You want fulfillment in your life? Christ is it. Your spouse isn't going to give it to you. You might think that he or she will. Your children aren't going to give it to you. Your job most certainly isn't going to give it to you. Where you live isn't going to give it to you. Your fulfillment is found in Christ, in Christ alone. And we do this by his grace, in his spirit. I mean, just ponder the spirit that dwells within you. What a beautiful, powerful thing. And that's why he had to ascend, right? That's why he had to ascend, so he could send the spirit, which is better, which is better, because he's in us, not just next to us, but in us. And because the spirit's in us, because he is enough, and you walk that way, you cling to him, you forsake all of this, and you forget what's behind and strain for what's ahead, you won't taste death. Your body will perish, but your soul goes immediately into everlasting glory with the Son of God. And if you struggle to see the, the joy, the satisfaction of this, right, you see Jesus and you just see the man, so to speak. Well, don't simply look to the man, to the God-man. Look to his work. Right? Look to the cross call to mind the climax of his life, his blood that he shed for your sin. The son of God, right? The one who's always existed, always were, the Alpha, the Omega, took on flesh, lived a life in perfect obedience, entered into our suffering, and then bled for your sin so that you would be reconciled to his father and that you would be a co-heir along with him. Ponder the gravity of your sin to help you shed your desire for it and ponder what he has done so that you can appreciate and grow a love for Christ. And remember, you are free because of that, like truly free. Yes, you're you're enslaved to Christ, but we want to be enslaved to the creator in perfection. But you're free from all the types of forms of slavery we talked about Christmas Eve, especially free from the fear of death. It no longer holds you because sin no longer holds you. You have been reconciled and you are his. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy and your patience with us. Father, you know our lives. You know the idols that exist. And again, you know, we really do lean on your patience and grace with us, Father. But help us not to take advantage of it. Help us to heed the warning that you give us here in in first kings and second kings help us to see this example of idolatry. how seriously you take it as well as the other verses we reference from your word father if we're unwilling to give up these idols destroy them for us do what you must if you need to break our lives for the sake of our souls do it father give us what we need to endure to the end Help us to be faithful to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Help us to love our neighbor enough to give them the truth, the dose of medicine that they need for your glory, Father. Help us to be bold in this. Give us peace when we do these things. Give us words as well, confidence. It's your spirit speaking through us. Help us to point people to your truth. Help us to feast on your word daily so that we may know your son, not just only personally, intimately, and we, we can drink and enjoy that, the, the, the abundant life that comes of that, but that we can share him as well. Help us to stay away from sin, keep us from falling into temptation. And, and Father, just um, whatever may be burdening us today, help us to cast it aside and just cling to your Son. Help us to really just taste the goodness of the glory of Christ. Help us not to just read your word as a transaction of information, but help us to read your word, to receive life, to know everlasting life, to know your Son in a way that only the Spirit himself who dwells within us can explain it to us, can help us experience and to know. So help us to be filled by the Spirit as we submit to your word in obedience. Father, we thank you for your grace. We ask that you will forgive us our sins. And as we come to the table this morning, we ask that you'd bless the, the bread and the cup, that they would be the gifts of grace, that they would encourage us this morning, reminding us what your Son has done, what Jesus has done. We thank you that we get to gather and remember the work of your Son every week, Father, but help us to live holy lives as we anxiously Await his return. Father, we ask that you would send him quickly. There's much suffering in this world. We seek eternity. But while we live here, as we are here doing your work, may we taste, may we have foretastes of what is to come as we partake of the supper, as we partake in fellowship, as we partake in singing songs of praise and worship to you. Father, we ask all these things for your glory. By the power of the Holy Spirit, in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So, at this time, we'll, we will enter into a communion. Uh, Matt will come up, be at one table. I'll be at the other table. If you are a believer in Christ and you're not walking in any unrepented sin, like you know you're committing a sin and you don't want to let go, if you're doing that, don't come to the table. Let's talk. Let's deal with it before you come to the table. We don't want to bring judgment upon you. But if you're a believer, take a moment to pray. Confess any sins that you might have, maybe any idols in your life. Confess it. Give it to God and then receive the good news of the gospel that you're forgiven once you confess it, right? He's just and faithful to forgive those who confess their sins. Come up, enjoy the supper that Christ has prepared for us and that one day we will enjoy with him um, in the flesh when he uh, returns and then we will close in a time of music.